Welcome to Texas True Crime. I'm your host, Jessica. I'm so glad that you're here with me today. I hope that everyone enjoyed their holiday week. We sure did. We celebrated Thanksgiving with friends and family. I even got in a little Black Friday shopping so I could get a jump start on my Christmas shopping. Um, and we got to do a little ice skating, which is different for us. You don't really do a lot of ice skating here in Texas because it really doesn't get cold enough to have that much ice. But we went to a Dickens on Main celebration in Bernie, Texas, and they actually set up an ice skating rink. So my younger daughter had a blast. I went with her and tried not to fall down on my rear and managed to stay upright. So it was a lot of fun. We are going to talk about Angel Maturino Resendez today. Some of you may know him as the railroad killer. In the 1990s, Angel Maturino Resendez used the railroad system to come back and forth between Mexico and the United States. He also used the railroad as personal delivery service to drop him off in places to murder people. I'm going to backtrack just a minute and tell you that I'm really stuffy today, and I apologize up front, and I'm going to try not to sniffle in your ear. So let's get back to the railroad killer. Um, Resendez murdered people in Texas, Florida, Georgia, Illinois, and Kentucky. He's been tied to nine murders, but it's believed that he's killed up to 23 people. During the late 90s, the news urged anyone who lived near the railroad tracks to be on high alert and watch out for Resendez until he was captured. He used many aliases and evaded arrest for quite some time. The railroad tracks run straight through my hometown. We get a train about every 15 minutes. Anyone who is new to town or visiting is surprised and kind of annoyed by it. The train tracks separate the town pretty much right down the middle, so it can be pretty inconvenient to be stuck on the wrong side of the tracks when you're trying to get somewhere, especially if you're running late. Angel Mazzarino Resendez murdered people less than an hour away from where I grew up. And, you know, everyone here was really nervous and on guard. After all, if it could happen in another tiny rural town, everyone figured, why couldn't it happen in our little town? At this time, my brother and I lived together, and he made sure that I kept a loaded 12-gauge shotgun next to my bed at all times. After all, we only lived one block from the tracks. Now, I know that sounds crazy, but that's how on alert everyone was, and no one thought that we were being over the top, or acting paranoid. If you turned on the news, the railroad killer was the top story. And there didn't seem to be any rhyme or reason about where he was going to go, why he would kill someone. There really was no rhyme or reason to any of it. And the fear was nationwide because he didn't just stick to Texas. He rode, he used the rail system to go all across the United States. Unfortunately for us, he never hopped off the train in our little town, but he sure did manage to make it to a lot of other towns. There was only one woman who survived his attack. After he brutally beat her and raped her, he left her for dead next to the railroad tracks. And we're going to talk about her a little later and really just how she turned a terrible, terrible thing that happened to her into something really good by helping other survivors. It took the combined efforts of an FBI task force, Texas Rangers, and Resendez's own sister to finally apprehend him in 1999. 
Resendez was born on August 1st, 1959 in Puebla, Mexico. His legal name was Angel Leoncio Reyes Resendez. Resendez lived with his mother until he was six. He never knew his father. His mother married a man in the military and she sent Resendez off to live with his aunt and uncle. When he was 12, he was sent back to live with his mother, but he didn't really want to go. He really enjoyed living with his aunt and uncle and thought of his uncle as his father figure. So he was very reluctant to leave. At 13, and this is when Resendez's mother thinks that the turning point came with him. She said when he was 13, he was at the river at a local swimming spot when some older boys sexually assaulted him. Soon after that, he dropped out of school in the seventh grade. His family described him as a quiet boy who was a loner and that he didn't cause any trouble. But then other people you talk to say that, yes, he was a loner, but he was quite eccentric and he had some odd views about things. So you know how that is. He entered the U.S. for the first time in Florida at the age of 14 before he was deported back to Mexico in 1976. And this will be a pattern throughout Resendez's life. He would go into the United States, either go back to Mexico of his own free will, or be deported back, and then he'd come back again. Even though Resendez was a dropout, he was no dummy. He spoke fluent English as well as Spanish, and his system for evading the police for 20 years was very sophisticated. He had multiple aliases, in fact, over 20 aliases, and all of them had documents that he had had made up. He had fake birth certificates social security cards, and INS documents, even voter registration cards for some of the areas that he visited. He kept them all stored in a locker at a bus station. And then when locker was found, not only was a gun found in there and a large knife, but all the documentation for over all 20 different aliases to go along with it. It was stuffed full. So this is not some guy who doesn't know what he's doing. He obviously had figured out how to work the system and how to get the documents made to keep him out of trouble, which is going to be part of the reason why it was so hard for authorities to figure out who this guy was and get him tracked down. In fact, in a span of 20 years, Resendez was either deported or voluntarily returned to Mexico. He was convicted nine times for serious felonies, including burglary, battery, evading arrest, and auto theft. Resendez would do his time and then be deported back to Mexico where he would create a new identity and slip back into the U.S. and pick up where he left off. Besides committing crimes, Resendez also used the rail system to follow different migrant work during certain times of the year. When it was time to pick oranges, he would go to Florida. During tobacco season, he would go to Kentucky, and so on and so forth. Sometimes he would send the money he made home to his family, and other times he would keep it for himself. Resendez was a reliable worker and gained the trust of many of his employees. He'd return year after year to the same farms. One of his employers in Kentucky said he thought very highly of Resendez. In fact, he put him in charge of several of the crews. He even said that they shared many meals together, talking about all kinds of things. People were shocked when they found out that Resendez was the railroad killer. They just didn't suspect him. People described him as quiet and polite, maybe a little eccentric. They said he kept to himself. 
His wife said she never saw any kind of temper from him at all. She also said that while she was pregnant with their daughter, he would rub her feet and legs to help her feel better. She said he was very gentle. I also think another thing that threw people off about Resendez was that he was a small man. He was only five foot seven and he weighed around 145 pounds. So besides the fact that he had a very quiet demeanor, he also didn't have a very threatening physical presence. So, you know, people always want killers and bad guys to be big, rough, tough looking guys. And I'll post pictures on Instagram and on Facebook and you're going to see. He would not be someone that you would automatically be scared of if he was walking down the street next to you. Resendez used objects of convenience to bludgeon his victims brutally that he found just in their homes or lying around nearby if they happened to be outside. In fact, most of the time, his victims were beaten so badly that they were not recognizable, except for the fact that most of them were murdered in their own homes. Otherwise, he really focused on their faces and their heads. It was almost like he was trying to obliterate them. So after he murdered people, he usually covered them with a blanket and then would put their driver's license out on a counter or somewhere else easy for police to find their identifications. He would also lay some sentimental items that he had found in their homes next to the driver's license. It's believed by several psychiatrists that he did this for two reasons. One, he wanted his victims to be able to be easily identified, to know who they were. And then also, they thought he really did want to learn about their lives and who these people were, which is really weird. He also would hang around and eat a snack or even a meal. And then he would take a few things from the homes before he left. Usually it was jewelry or other items. And the crazy thing is, is you would think that he was probably taking them to sell. But a lot of times the jewelry he actually gave to his mother and his wife. And later on, if the women had not sold them themselves for money for them to have, then they actually returned those items to the victim's families. The women in Resendez's family, well, all of Resendez's family were shocked. They did not think that he was capable of doing these things until after it all came out. So if they still had the joy in their possession, they did return it to the families. The first time Resendez murdered someone was in Bear County in 1986. Now, if you remember back, we talked about Bear County, uh, well, multiple times. Janine Jones, remember her, the killer nurse? She spent most of her time in Bear County. So if you remember, Bear County covers San Antonio and a lot of the surrounding areas of San Antonio. That was his first murder. An unidentified homeless woman was found in a deserted farmhouse. She had been shot four times by a 38 caliber weapon. Resendis met the woman at a homeless shelter and he took her on a motorcycle ride. They stopped at the farmhouse to shoot his gun, a 38 caliber pistol, but when she insulted him, he got mad and decided that he should kill her instead. The woman was never able to be identified by police. He Resendis also shot and killed the woman's boyfriend and left his body in a creek. Now, his body was also never able to be recovered, but Resendez confessed to both murders after he was arrested. The police believe that he was responsible for these murders because of the details that he provided to them. He was able to share things that were never released to the public, and so therefore they knew that he must have been their killer. 
Now, they never did learn the names of either of these two people, and Resendez didn't know them either. He claimed that the man and woman were involved in voodoo, and that's why he killed them. In July of 1991, 33-year-old Michael White was beaten to death with a brick and left in the yard of an abandoned house in downtown San Antonio. Resendez also admitted to killing Michael after he'd been captured and said that he killed him just because he was gay. On March 23, 1997, Resendez killed two teenage runaways in Ocala, Florida, 19-year-old Jesse Howell and Wendy Von Eubin, 16, near the railroad tracks. He beat Jesse with an air hose coupling and left his body along the tracks. He then beat, raped, and strangled Wendy and buried her body about 40 miles away in a shallow grave in Sumter County, Florida. The two teenagers had run away from Illinois, had hopped on a train car, and were hoping to find work picking oranges in Florida. Unfortunately for them, they did not know that they had jumped into the same car as Resendez. Now, Resendez claimed that the reason he murdered the young couple was because they exhibited unchristian-like behavior, and so he murdered them. I think it's interesting that Resendez murdered all these people, uh, sexually assaulted a lot of these women, either while they were alive or assaulted their corpses. And he claims that these people were unchristian like. I'm pretty sure Jesus would frown on the fact that you're killing and raping people. Just saying. On August 28th, 1997, Christopher Meyer and Holly Dunn were walking home from a party. The couple both attended the University of Kentucky. They were using a path alongside the railroad tracks to get home. It was late at night and very dark. Resendis was hiding behind a three-foot-tall medical electrical box and came out from behind the box and approached the couple asking for money. They both told him they didn't have any money, and he quickly started a fight, grabbed Christopher, tied him up, and gagged him, and then also grabbed Holly and tied her up also with pieces of clothing. Resendis then ran off and came back with a large rock, 52 pounds to be exact and dropped it on Christopher's head, killing him. Resendez then raped Holly and beat her savagely. At first, she fought against Resendez, but he told her to stop because he said, look at how easy it was for me to kill your date, and I can kill you just as easily too. So she stopped fighting. He left her there, thinking that he had killed her. Now, Resendez beat her so badly, she had a broken eye socket, when they did finally get her some help, she had to have her jaw wired shut for it to be reconstructed. She had to have her head stapled shut. And she also, of course, sustained multiple cuts, bruises, and other contusions. They never did find the item that he used to beat Holly up with, but they think it was a board. When Holly regained consciousness, she was able to get up and walk to a house and call 911 for help. She is the only survivor of Resendez. In an interview later, Holly Dunn spoke of the attack. She said that it had been over 20 years since her attack, but she still doesn't have feeling in the back of her head in certain places where he hit her over and over and over again. But Holly doesn't think of herself as a victim. She says she's a survivor. And she co-founded Holly's House in 2008, a child and adult advocacy center for victims of intimate crimes. Her center not only helps survivors, but it also educates people on how to be safe and help to prevent from being a victim of a violent crime. 
She's also written a book. So she really took something that was a horrific thing that happened to her and has used it to help other people. And she said, it's not like she just got up and got over it. It was very hard for her. She had to have a lot of therapy and a lot of time to heal. But obviously, she's done really well. Now, Resendez's spree continued. In October of 1998, he beat 87-year-old Leafy Mason to death with an antique flat iron in her home in U Springs, Texas. Now, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but an antique flat iron is this big piece of iron shaped like an iron to iron your clothes. But of course, there was no electricity when these irons were used. So you put them in the fire and they got hot and then you would get it out and use that heat to iron with. I have one that was my great, great grandmother's. I use it as a doorstop. It's heavy y'all. I bet over five pounds. I can't imagine beating someone or being beaten with it. It's just horrific to think about. And here was this 87 year old lady. She wasn't doing anything. She was asleep in her bed. Resendez climbed into her bedroom window and hit her over and over and over again. He left her lying on her bedroom floor and he covered her with a blanket. She only lived 70 yards from the railroad tracks. So that's the thing. All of his victims, he, like I told you, he uses the railroad tracks to hop off and on. And they're unfortunately just victims of circumstance. They haven't done anything. They haven't committed any crimes. They're just right there, a place for him to go in and murder someone and get something to eat and leave again. On December 10th, 1998, Resendez, sorry, bludgeoned 81-year-old Fanny Byers to death with a tire rim in her home in Carl, Georgia. Her murders led authorities to believe that they had a serial killer on their hands. This was the turning point right here. All the similarities were adding up, and this is what really started the hunt for the railroad killer. Just seven days later, Claudia Benton, 39, a pediatric neurologist, was raped, stabbed, and bludgeoned with a statue inside her home in West University Place, Texas, on December 17, 1998. So West University Place is right near Houston, and her home was also close to the railroad tracks. Claudia's family had gone to Arizona on a trip. She was unable to go with them because she had a presentation to give at Baylor University the next day. Authorities believe that Claudia was worn out from working on her presentation, and she fell asleep on her bed watching TV. Resendez broke in and attacked her. After killing Claudia, he stole some jewelry, a guitar, and a banjo. He also stole her Jeep. Her Jeep was later found abandoned in San Antonio near the railroad tracks, and Resendez's fingerprints were on the steering column. He also had left DNA behind at her home, which also these fingerprints and this DNA are going to be used to link him to all these murders across the state. And this is really murdering Claudia Benson is what Benton, I'm sorry, is what really did him in. George Benton would later, later tell the court that the hardest thing he's ever had to do was tell his two 13 year old twin daughters that their mother was dead. He even said in a statement, he said she was a loving, caring woman and that if he had just knocked on the door and asked for some food, Claudia would have given it to him. That's the thing. Again, he went in, 
killed her violently, stabbed her over 19 times. She had broken ribs. She had broken fingers. She had a broken arm. She fought back just obviously as hard as she could to try to survive the attack. She had two collapsed lungs. It was vicious. And that's the thing. I'm not going to give you all the details to everything he did to these people, but every single time he didn't just want to kill. He wanted them to just basically be non-existent every single time. It was brutal. When authorities ran the prints through Texas's APHIS program, they got a match on some fingerprints that were linked to a man named Carlos Cluthier Rodriguez, one of Resendez's main many aliases. The prints were then submitted to the Texas Department of Public Safety, where a match was found in California. The match in California then led the FBI to find a match in the NCIC, which determined he'd been all over the United States, not just in Texas. This further strengthened their case that he was responsible for murders in Texas, in Kentucky, in Georgia, and Florida. Now, they do believe that he was also responsible for some murders in California, but unfortunately, they didn't have enough proof to tie him to California, but the murder was very, very similar. In January of 1999, a federal warrant was issued for Resendez's arrest. He went back home to Mexico to await the birth of his daughter in the small town of Rodeo, Mexico. He then returned to the States in May of 1999. On May 2, 1999, Pastor Norman Cernick, 46, and his wife Karen Cernick, 47, were found bludgeoned to death with a 12-pound sledgehammer in the parsonage of the United Church of Christ in Weimar, Texas. The parsonage was right next to the railroad tracks. When the couple did not show up for Sunday services Sunday morning, parishioners went back to check on them. The couple was found lying in their beds, and the sledgehammer was leaning against the wall right next to the bed. They had both been hit in the head multiple times, and there was proof that after Ms. Cernick died, that Resendez had assaulted her body after the fact. Their red Mazda pickup truck had been stolen and was found three weeks later in San Antonio. Resendez's fingerprints were all over the truck. So that's the other thing. He didn't try to cover his tracks. He left DNA and fingerprints everywhere. It was like he didn't care or just thought that he was invincible. On June 1st, Resendez was arrested in Sunland Park, New Mexico by Immigration and Naturalization Service officers for being an undocumented alien. He was already a suspect in the Cernic and Benton killings. When INS ran his fingerprints through its computers, nothing popped up. Since their system is not linked to the files of other law enforcement agencies, nothing popped, which isn't that crazy that immigration services isn't linked to the FBI or to any other local law enforcement uh, databases. So they didn't even know. The next day, Resendez was allowed to walk right down the middle of one of the international, international bridges in El Paso, Texas, and was released into Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. He was a free man. So after he had murdered all these people, there is a federal warrant out for his arrest. He just walked on back across the bridge and went back to Mexico. Now, INS officials later tried to recover from the debacle by saying that they had never gotten a red flag on him. 
If we had been given the information, said Russ Bergeron, the chief spokesman for the INS, we would have been looking for him specifically. I'm pretty sure that was just a CYA move. Of course, this meant that Resendez then was free to come back into the U.S. and murder some more. Just two days later, he was back. Resendez returned to Weimar again on June 4th, 1999. Now, that's the thing. You know, people think a serial killer is going to hit and then they won't come back, especially to a tiny little rural town out kind of off on its own. But no, he liked Weimar. He came back. This time he murdered Josephine Convica, 72, with a pickaxe in her farmhouse just a few miles outside of town. Resendez's fingerprints were found all inside her house. The small town was again rocked by another vicious murder at the hands of the railroad killer. This time the police used dogs to track his scent, but they lost the scent at the railroad tracks. So, of course, officials believe that, again, he ran back to the tracks, hopped on another train car, and was off again. On June 5th, 1999, 26-year-old Noemi Dominguez was beaten to death with the same pickaxe that he used to murder Miss Convicta in her apartment. She was a teacher in Houston at Benjamin Franklin Elementary School and was working on her master's degree at Rice University. She liked to write poetry. Her apartment was only four miles from Claudia Benton's home. Resendez stole Noemi's white Honda Civic, and seven days later, her car was found on the International Bridge in Del Rio, Texas, by Texas State Troopers. George Morber Sr., 80, had gone outside to pick up his newspaper, and when he got back into his house, he came face-to-face with Resendez. He was found in his home in Gorham, Illinois, located only 100 yards from the railroad tracks on June 15, 1999. He had been tied to a chair with a telephone cord and shot in the head with his own shotgun. His daughter, Carolyn Frederick, 52, arrived at her father's house a short time later to clean for him. Carolyn came by once a week to tidy things up for her elderly father. Resendez met Carolyn at the front door and beat her to death with with the same shotgun that he had used to kill her father. He beat her so hard with that shotgun that it broke in half. I cannot imagine. Carolyn's husband found her covered up with blankets in the house, only her feet were sticking out. He went over, he said, to the wall and hit the wall hoping to get a response from her. He did not uncover her. I'm sure he was very frightened to find out what his wife looked like. And I don't blame him one bit. You see, the house had been ransacked. So you know he knew something terrible had happened. When he got no response from her, he left the house and went and called the sheriff's office. He didn't even go to find his father-in-law. He never saw his father-in-law's body. Now, like I said, the house had been ransacked and Mr. Morber's truck had been stolen. Inside the house, there was Resendez's hair and fingerprints everywhere. When they found the truck 60 miles away in Cairo, Illinois, it was also covered in fingerprints. That's the thing. He didn't try to cover anything up. It was, I mean, I don't know if he thought he was invincible. He thought he couldn't be caught or he just didn't really care. A week later, the FBI added him to their most wanted list, but under one of his aliases, Rafael Resendez Ramirez. He was even featured on an episode of America's Most Wanted. The error was finally corrected on the wanted posters, but like we talked about a little bit ago, 
That was part of the problem. He had so many aliases and had been arrested under so many different names, it was hard to get him tracked down. Resendez's sister concerned that either vigil aunties or someone else might kill Resendez decided to start working with the Texas Rangers to get him to come in and be apprehended peacefully. She finally got him agree to a, to a peaceful surrender on July 13th, 1999. He crossed the bridge in El Paso, Texas and surrendered to Ranger Drew Carter. The two men shook hands and then Carter took him into custody. Resendez was evaluated and determined to be mentally disturbed, but not insane and fit to stand trial, even though he believed he was an avenging angel sent by God to punish those who were evil and deserved to die. Now, I can't imagine that all those sweet little old ladies were so evil and deserved to die. That's the thing. He didn't pick on, pick on, I'm sorry, that's a terrible term, pick on. He didn't choose his victims unless they were elderly or in smaller stature or sleeping in their beds. Because remember, he himself was not a big guy. So he picked people that were easy to prey upon. Resendez himself believed that he would not die and that he was unable to die because of this status as an avenging angel. But they said he was fit to stand trial. And so on May 18th, 2000, Holly Dunn testified at the trial. In an interview with KSAT, she told them how hard it was for her to testify and also how helpful her attorney was during the trial. I'm going to read to you what she said, because I really couldn't figure out a way to edit it. And I think that everything she said bears worth hearing. This is what Holly said. I didn't actually look at him. My processing acuting attorney was really good. And she was like, you know, look at me. Look at your family sitting behind me. Don't look at him. He'll be off to your left-hand side. And so I really turned off my peripheral vision. I did not look at him the entire time I was giving my testimony. But then they got to that point in the trial when they say, is the person who attacked you in the courtroom today? And you know, I had never actually been in a courtroom. I didn't know that they actually said this. I thought it was just on TV, but they did say it. And so I knew it was his trial. I said, yes, but I still hadn't looked at him at this point. And they said, could you please tell us what he's wearing? I thought, oh man, you know, then I knew I had to look at him. And when I looked at him, he had a smirk on his face and his eyes looked black and I literally almost fainted. My hearing started going inside my head. It started everybody. Everything started to sound like echoes. And I started to break out into a cold sweat. And I just remember saying, he's wearing a white button down shirt. And then everybody started to realize that I was about to lose it because I think I was even probably emotionally upset. I mean, I don't even, I don't even remember what I was doing. I'm sure I was crying, but I don't know if I was. I was hyperventilating and what I was doing to show, and I don't really know what I was doing to show everybody that this was about to happen. So the judge was really fast and he said, okay, do you have any more questions to the defense? No, they did not have any questions. And the bailiff basically picked me up and carried me out of the courtroom. And it's just amazing that I didn't faint because 
I was about to. I think as close as you can get to fainting. That was my experience in seeing it again. It was awful. Resendis was convicted of the murder of Dr. Claudia Benton and sentenced to death. He appealed this decision, but his appeal was denied. On June 27, 2006, he was executed in Huntsville, Texas. In front of, before his execution, he addressed the family of his victims by saying, I want to ask if it is in your heart to forgive me. You don't have to. I know I allowed the devil to rule my life. I just ask you to forgive me and ask the Lord to forgive me for allowing the devil to deceive me. I thank God for having patience with me. I don't deserve to cause you pain. You did not deserve this. I deserve what I'm getting. After that, he was injected and he died. All of the victims' families came to see, came to watch him die, and his family was there also. Thank you for listening today. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. If I'd really like to hear your thoughts on Resendez, he's a scary guy. If you'd like to reach out, you can find me on Instagram at Texas True Crime Pod. You can find me on Facebook at Texas True Crime. You can also send me an email at Texas True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. If you like what you hear, please share the podcast with a friend. Also, rate, subscribe, leave a five-star review. I would really appreciate it. I will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.